This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Nick Hunt takes us across landscapes that should not be there. Wildernesses found in Europe, yet seemingly belonging to far-off continents. A patch of Arctic tundra in Scotland, the continent's largest surviving remnant of ancient forests in Poland and Belarus, Europe's only true desert in Spain, and the fathomless grassland steppes of Hungary. From snow-capped mountain range to dense green forest, desert ravines to threadbare yellow open grassland, these oddities transport us to faraway regions of the world. Nick joins me today to talk about these spaces, which he documents in his new book, Outlandish. We also talk about travel writing's relationship with nature writing and a critique of the genres as being egocentric. But first, I just want to say thanks to Whitney B. for leaving a nice review on Apple Podcasts. They said, I recently started listening to the podcast and I've already learned a lot from it. Thanks for listening, Whitney, and same. I always learn a lot from our guests, and, and today's guest is no exception. So I'm glad other people out there are getting some value from the show. So if you want to support the show, you can do so by leaving a review, like Whitney, on whichever podcast app you use, or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month, less than a cup of coffee, at travelridingworld.com support. And we're mailing a free copy of Outlandish to one lucky listener today. So if you want to learn how to win a copy, listen to the end of the episode. So now, here is Nick Hunt. Well, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So I want to start off with a scene in your new book, Outlandish, in which you're hiking in the Cairngorms and... What was first a like snowless day changed course. You were hiking up to the summit of a mountain and the weather turns, the clouds part, and before you stands ridges of snow-covered mountains kind of like rippling forever into the distance. Uh, you have what I'd describe as a sublime experience, and, and I'm going to read a passage here from your book. Uh, you write, I had a glimpse into the portal, the outlandish place I came looking for, that unbroken, frozen whiteness stretching endlessly away. But the sight of it only frightened me. So I was wondering if you could, uh, by way of introduction, tell us about this episode and uh, the concept of outlandish. Okay, yeah, that's a really good place to begin. So I'll start with, I start with the concept and then that will lead into this, okay. that moment on the mountain that you read about. The concept began in the southeast of England in Kent, where there is a shingle foreshore that is popularly referred to as England's only desert, which is this kind of wonderful designation that actually isn't true. Um, <laughs> it's not technically a desert. Maybe we'll get into that later. But I was struck by how the thought of it being a desert did something to my brain and my imagination when I was there. It felt outlandish in that it did not feel like the southeast of England. It felt like it could be some sort of North American wasteland in a time that was quite non-specific. It kind of took me out of time and out of place. And I became interested in what, how that had changed my relationship to um, 
you know, what was essentially just a kind of very large flat field of stones um, and how it felt like I traveled much further in time and place. And so I started looking into different, initially I thought I wanted to talk about different deserts in, in Europe, but then the idea I suppose became more conceptual in that I found four places that seemed to be anomalies in time and place scattered across the European continent. So the Cairngorms is one of these. The Cairngorms is a patch of Arctic tundra um, stranded in the northeast of Britain. It's up there in Scotland between Inverness and Perth. And in terms of its temperature and its flora and fauna and general feel, it's closer to Scandinavia or Iceland or somewhere in the Arctic Circle mm -hmm. than it is to the highlands that everybody kind of you know, thinks about when they think of Scotland. So it seemed like an exclave of the Arctic stranded in Scotland. So the idea was to, to kind of go to a landscape like that and see if I could almost imaginatively transport myself to the Arctic without leaving in like Britain in this case. Mm -hmm. And then from there, the idea expanded to um, the Białowieża forest in Poland and Belarus, which is a remnant, the largest remaining fragment of the original temperate forest that once covered the North European plain. So this vast kind of continent sized forest that's now been reduced to an island of trees. Um, and is just a kind of exclave of the primeval past. And then the third landscape was Tabernas Desert in Spain, which is um, technically Europe's only desert. It fulfills all the climatological parameters by which a, you know, a desert has to be known. It's to do with the precipitation mainly. Um, so it's dry enough to classify as a desert. And again, I mean, just the idea of Europe having a desert, I found transporting in itself, because to me, deserts seem to belong to very far away places. Mm -hmm. um, and Europe seems to be far too tame and civilized and cultivated to have such a thing. But there one is, and again, it was a journey into the imagination. And then the third exclave of place was um, the, the grassland steppe in the east of Hungary, which is, is really the kind of end of the that vast area, sort of stretch of grasslands, that belt of steppe land that stretches all the way east as far as Mongolia and China. So those were the four landscapes that became the, the four chapters of this book. So the concept of outlandish refers to uh, places that transport you mentally to other places, places that kind of carry the imagination away, places that dislodge you in mind from the place you're currently in places that evoke elsewhere is that is that right yeah exactly yeah dislodging that's a nice way of putting it um and i've, I've sort of discovered this through walking a lot in europe um which has been my focus in the last couple of books last three books i've done that you don't have to be that far away from from you know civilization from towns and cities and agriculture to suddenly feel that that sense of being dislodged of being much further um, away from where you think you are 
And there's a distinction as well between wild and outlandish in my mind. I'm not really seeking hmm. wild places, um, whatever that means these days. But it, they're not. About, it's not about wilderness. It's about that kind of imaginative outlandishness. So you don't necessarily need to go to a very special place in terms of an ecology or the environment. It has to be a place that kind of transports you in mind. It could be tame as opposed to wild. Yeah, it, yeah, it could. And all four of these places, it turns out, are ecologically very interesting and you know have lots of um, unique characteristics ecologically. Right. Um, hope- but that wasn't a requirement of, of what I was trying to find. Yeah. I hope we can talk about that, uh, the the kind of environmental piece in, in a bit. But um, before we go there, uh, one one of the uh, tropes in, in travel writing specifically, but often in narrative nonfiction, is kind of like the, the why <laughs> section, like the why I went, uh, you know, the narrative motivation for going on a, a quest or a journey. And I was wondering um, if you could speak to um, kind of the, the, the driving force behind uh, your quest, yeah. Yeah, I've had a um a very deep yearning, I suppose, ever since I was a child that I've only kind of as an adult started to kind of understand recently. Mm-hmm. Um and it yeah, to do with these kind of landscapes of the imagination in my head as a child, there were certain places that would always exist that were these kind of immutable features of the world like snow-covered mountains, endless forests, Mm -hmm. deserts, you know, endless plains of grasses. And I sort of trusted that these things would always be there waiting for me to discover them or else even not just existing in and of themselves. And then growing older and seeing the, the kind of ecological and climate crises raging like a lot of people, I suppose, I'm, I'm just kind of finally belatedly realizing that these places are not guaranteed and they're not permanent. Right. That they might cease to exist and, and are ceasing to exist. And so I've been, obviously, you know, this is very painful. It's, it's a kind of, as well as everything else, it's a loss of childhood innocence, I suppose, or loss in this kind of, in the book I write about the the sort of eternal snows of, of, of Mount Everest and the Himalayas and the Arctic mm-hmm. and Antarctica and seeing, you know, seeing them melting, seeing them disappearing, not with my own eyes, but through media, mm-hmm. it's like a kind of loss of eternity. It's a loss in the belief of, of permanence and stability. And so the book is amongst other things, it's an attempt to kind of really get under the skin of what that means and, and how to keep how to keep this sense of wonder and awe in the world around me in a time when a lot of it is literally disappearing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very clear in, in what you're saying um, <laughs> that that the book has a, a very clear ecological message. Um, I think it's easy to read in the book that the concept of like outlandish um, as kind of like a literary device to discuss these landscapes, um, you know, amid the ecological catastrophe that that the world is facing. Um, And of course, the irony here is that uh, these are places that carry the imagination away, yet some of these places may only exist in imagination in a few years, right? Um, So I was wondering if you could uh, perhaps give us an idea about 
how uh, human activity is altering these uh, four areas you visited. You'd mentioned the, the receding kind of glaciers and the receding eternal snows. And this is a concept that comes up again in your book towards the end with the, the Sphinx and, and, mm-hmm. and those glacial areas. Um, but what about some of the other areas like the forest and, and, and the desert? Like how is human activity altering these, these places that you visited? Yeah. I'd just like to say just before, uh-huh. before that, um, this kind of, the, the kind of theme of climate crisis and ecological crisis wasn't there when I started doing these journeys and you mentioned it as a sort of literary kind of device. And I freely admit that my initial idea seemed to me more like a kind of smart, you know, not a gimmick exactly, but a kind of clever idea looking at a place that seemed to be like another place and kind of imaginatively exploring that. Uh-huh. And I didn't know how these four places connected and it became, it was quite a kind of problem for me until about halfway through the book, I guess, when I, or halfway through the process of writing, I didn't really know what it was that made this a book. And then in the last chapter in Hungary, there's a, a moment, a kind of emotional realization that I had. Um, and suddenly the whole, it made sense as a book about, about climate and about environment. So that became the theme that strung all these landscapes together. Oh, that's interesting. Often, I think, when you you know you start, you don't really know why you're writing something often until quite late in the process, and then suddenly something clicks, and you go, "Oh, that's what I was doing all along." Yeah, you you write to to help um, formulate your own thoughts and to understand what it is you believe. Yeah, if you know why you're, if you know what your argument is in the beginning, and in a sense, why write the book? You know, it's kind of it's not <laughs> if you're not learning yourself. Yeah. Or at least that's, yeah, that's kind of, often I've got no idea what I'm doing until I'm almost done. But I'm happy to talk about those, um, talking about human activity. The Cangorms, I mean, it was immediately impossible not to think of this landscape in terms of climate change because the Cangorms has the, the greatest glacial valley in Britain. There have been no glaciers in Britain for 11,000 years, but you can see the shapes of the glaciers and how they formed the land. And then that initial journey was in deep winter. It was January. It was icy cold, frozen. And, you know, it was a landscape of the imagination that kind of took me back to this glacial time. And I've always been fascinated by, by glaciers and by that kind of, the idea of this, you know, ice-covered landscape thawing and humans moving in. And so I suppose just being there and seeing a landscape that had been absolutely scarred and changed by the changing climate put me in that in that mindset from the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then going to it was almost like a kind of a chronologically, accidentally, it, it worked quite well that I went from the place that had been marked by the melting of the glaciers to the forest in Poland that had grown up about 10,000, 11,000 years ago as the glaciers in Northern Europe retreated. And there was this huge kind of, huge at the time of climate change where trees suddenly kind of popped up and started colonizing this area that had been tundra and permafrost as that kind of shrunk back and this seemingly happened in you know a relatively short space of time people that were living at the time as kind of hunters on this open step would have seen the saplings kind of coming up and 
you know, as you probably know, forests don't take that long to grow, you know, trees shoot up within a couple of generations. So this whole landscape kind of altered massively. And that was fascinating, the idea of sort of trees as colonizing, um, you know, invasives to, to, that's how it must have seemed to these people at the time. But of course I was seeing it at the end of many thousands of years later when most of Europe has been totally deforested. And there was just one enclave of primeval wildwood left. So my first couple of days in Bielovesia, I stayed in a house of um, people that call themselves forest defenders. They were Polish eco-activists who had been um, instrumental really in stopping the Polish government logging old growth sections of the forest a few, uh, several years before. So you know, it was a protected area, a UNESCO site, but also the government were, were still, you know, trying to kind of log certain areas under the pretext of fighting birch um, beetle, the spruce bark beetle infestations, but in the process, um, you know, demolishing stands of, of, of 500 year old oak trees and kind of selling the, selling the timber. So, it was a threatened place that I was in. And then through the eyes of these activists um, who were very educated about the forest ecology, I started to see that forest, not just as being threatened by, by kind of chainsaws, but also by climate change. The reason that the spruce bark beetles are attacking the trees is because the trees are being weakened because of atmospheric conditions and the, the, you know, the climate they need to thrive is is changing into something that's warmer and drier. So again, climate change kind of reared its head in that walk and in that chapter. And then in the third chapter, when I went to Spain, suddenly I wasn't looking back into the deep past, but getting frightening glimpses of a possible future. Mm -hmm. I walked into the desert in the heat wave of June 2019, that at the time was the hottest month in recorded history, which, you know, in many ways is not a good idea to spend time walking around a desert <laughs> in a heat wave. And I suffered um, not bad heat stroke, but, you know, I certainly had to be very careful about moving <laughs> at all. Right. Spent most of my time just lying in the shade, kind of nursing my my very carefully secreted bottles of water um but we're you know again the continent's moving into a time when these kind of extreme heat events are going to be uh, more and more common and so that was like a, a little glimpse forwards rather than backwards yeah you you mentioned the the congorms and um you know it reminded me and, and this is something that you talk about in the book that even uh, nan shepherd uh, noted uh, in the early 20th century when she was writing, um, I believe, uh, that she witnessed the, the, the snows receding or the, the, the glaciers receding. So this is something that, you know, this kind of champion of, of nature writing um, that, that we hold so, so uh, dearly today, in, in her lifetime, she, she noticed it. And, you know, since then, of course, the, the March of Progress, things are, are getting even worse. So, I mean, it's not like uh, anyone can't say that they haven't been warned about, about these changes as they relate to, them, to the environment. 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but the, the kind of speed of change is has become quite startling. Um, you know, in the past, just over the past 20 years, this kind of idea of the great acceleration where right. everything just seems to be getting faster. Right. Right. Well, I wanted to also um, talk to you um, a few a few questions about kind of uh, travel writing and, and, and nature writing more, more broadly in the context of, of what you're talking about, um, because it seems... Um, to me over the last, I don't know, two decades or so, uh, this, this new nature writing is coming up and somehow in some ways, um, not taking over travel writing, but being talked about in, in the same breath, uh, like travel writers can also be nature writers and, 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 and vice versa. Uh, but it seems in the last 20 years or so, it's, it's becoming increasingly popular, uh, as a genre or a style or whatever, um, uh, whatever you want to talk, whatever you want to call it. Um, but there seems to be a par- parallel here with, with um, our attention and our focus and our understanding of what's going on ecologically and the, or a correlation at least, between that and the rise of what's been, been called the, the new nature writing, right? So as we're focused more on ecological catastrophe, nature writing is becoming even more critical and even more important and kind of documenting and really opening our eyes, the world's eyes to, to these issues. So is it okay if I ask you a few questions about nature writing and, and travel writing here? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, you, you just mentioned <laughs> 2019, um, in June, you're walking in, uh, in the desert in Spain. And obviously, uh, this is a book that you thought about and you're traveling for and, and writing, um, you know, before the pandemic, uh, yet you, you mentioned in the intro that you sought places, uh, close to home, which seems to be a trend now that we're in the, in the pandemic. Um, so the pandemic pandemic is raging in the subcontinent, um, India, Latin America, all over, all over the world. Yet in our tiny little corners in the United States and the United Kingdom and parts of Europe, it seems that, you know, the world is um, bubbling back to life. So where do you see uh, travel writing and nature writing? Where do you see them going moving forward? I know this is a terribly broad question, but uh, just interesting, uh, interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's, it makes a lot of sense to me that the, the two genres have kind of collided and merged together, travel and nature. Um and I don't really, I know there's lots of debate about what is a nature writer and do you have to be, you know, sort of, do you have to have a scientific background to, right. to talk about the natural world with authority or can you just be a, you know, a kind of wide-eyed enthusiast? Um, and I don't really see, my, I don't call myself a nature writer. Uh, I call myself a travel writer. I'm sure there's lots of objections to that term too, but it just seems simplest to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, yeah, the, the fact that the, the two are kind of colonizing each other's territories. Um, I, I suspect just as I kind of started writing this book and then it had to be about about climate change, really. That was the only thing it kind of could be about once I'd spent time in these landscapes. I suspect for many people it's increasingly difficult to write honestly and fully about traveling without taking this, you know, this kind of reality into account. It's very, you know, when photographers kind of go and artfully crop out the 
you know, they want to get a nice shot of a penguin, so they just kind of turn away from the pile of garbage and the cruise ship in the background and the other people um, and just get this kind of perfect nature shot. I think it's getting harder and harder to do that, um, certainly in travel writing, that to go and kind of write about some pristine, unspoiled place just isn't, it, it's not true. <laughs> you know, it's not being honest about the the complex nature of what, where we are. Yeah, and especially without acknowledging the the carbon footprint and the the you know the greenhouse gases that are emitted into the atmosphere um, by getting on a plane, and that it seems it's it's harder as you're mentioning. It's harder to to write about these things without at least acknowledging that to some degree. Yeah, yeah, it is it's such a. I mean, at the moment, just speaking from kind of from the UK, we've got we've gone very rapidly from being imagine just kind of swanning around the world and you know i've done it myself with my british passport not really thinking about how lucky i am to be able to do these things yeah. to suddenly having you know the ethical considerations of getting on a plane um and the knowledge of what you're actually putting into the atmosphere by doing that and obviously covid where it's been you know, sort of impossible to move, which is quite simple. People just haven't had a choice. But now, as we are opening up, it becomes more complicated because there is a choice. And part of, you know, how I travel is I, I like just wandering around, walking into a village, chatting to people, talking to people in a bar, having these random encounters with strangers. And now, you know, it's very hard to imagine doing that with such kind of sort of feeling so free to, to to do that and there's an ethical consideration there and then i know this is very uk focused but now we've also got brexit right where there are suddenly restrictions about driving in europe and the amount of time you can stay in certain countries and you know who knows what's to come but we've got these kind of it's like three layers of of um considerations now that we didn't used to have and so I think it is, yeah, it is a, a very strange moment for people who, for travel writers, who are often obviously, you know, people who have a deep curiosity and a deep love for new and new experiences and new encounters and being challenged by different views and, and different different habits. Right. So yeah, it's it's a very strange moment. Yeah. Especially because, you know, if you consider all the good that comes out of, you know, writing and publishing and, and sharing experiences, hopefully in the name of, um, you know, championing championing diversity and, you know, kind of like this idea of the global, global tribe, those ethical concerns about the ecology of travel um, put, put travel writers in a very uh, uh, precarious position in terms of you know, the tension, balancing the good and the potential pitfalls of it all. Yeah, that, there was um, somebody on on Twitter who I don't know just made me think about this. You know, um, I'd kind of republished a piece that The Guardian put. There's an extra excerpt from my book and they picked a line that's quite a sort of pithy throwaway line in the book, but it obviously makes a good headline. Why go to the Sahara when you can visit Kent? <laughs> and that was about Dungeness. And it's a kind of silly line. Um, but she she just said, you know, I, I love this idea of kind of finding 
outlandishness in in Kent and being surprised by where you are and and being having a sense of wonder about where you are. But it's not the Sahara, you know. It's just not. And the kind of she said something like, "Big places, big places make people big," or something along those lines. And she was arguing that you can't have the same sort of learning. You can't learn the same sort of lessons in a very safe little corner of Southeast England than you can by going to the Sahara. It's just, they're not really comparable. And it's true. And part of the kind of, I guess, the tension within the book is that I am talking about this finding the outlandish in the close at hand, and that's what the book's about. But at the same time, it's a huge loss, the idea of not being able to, to travel in the way that we did until relatively recently. No matter how ma- much people kind of talk about the magic in the everyday and all of the stuff that's happened during lockdown where people have really explored their local places, which is wonderful. And I'm not criticising it at all. It's really important that people are doing that. Um, but I think it's also worth acknowledging the loss of loss of freedom is a big thing mm-hmm. and the idea of being able to you know go to the sahara is 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 magic for me and the right. thought of not not being able to do that for various practical or ethical considerations you know it's mm-hmm. uh, it's a reckoning yeah no, nothing uh, opens someone's eyes quite like going to a place um and understanding the privilege uh that they have to travel and their privileged existence back home. That's true. And obviously, you know, this, it's, it's possible to go go to the other side of the world and not change at all, not change your attitude or opinions right. um, and not really be in that place. You know, people can be amazingly blinkered, um, especially, you know, because it's easy to kind of, everyone's got their phone, they've got their connection to home, yeah. they've got their little bubble that they carry around with them. And not, you know, I'm speaking about myself as well, of course. You know, everyone carries part of themselves with them when they travel. But it's definitely possible to, yeah, to go to the other side of the world and not be enlightened in any way at all and come back exactly the same or worse, possibly. Right, right. So so where do you see travel writing going uh, after this is all done, if it ever finishes? Well, I think people will obviously be traveling in a in a different way. I don't see how they how they can't and i hope a lot of these questions of of privilege and freedom of movement come up in the writing um you know i think that it has been a while since the kind of the sort of more the kind of i guess the sort of colonial style of travel writing of going off and kind of talking about the talking about the locals and coming back with knowledge about their lives and and that's been a, a couple of generations ago um, but I think it's going to move again, I think, into hopefully just a more thoughtful and, and humble. That's the word I keep on kind of circling back to when I think about about what we're coming to. I think people hopefully are going to travel a little bit more humbly um, in terms of how they interact with people and how they interact with landscape and environment, the place they're in. Mm-hmm. So instead of learning about the lives of others in the kind of this old colonial model, bringing that knowledge back and sharing it with the world, uh, they maybe will go out and 
kind of learn a little bit more about themselves, kind of an inward turn. Yeah, and I mean themselves and I suppose possibly less projection of of kind of what you think you're seeing. Maybe more just people need to listen more and um right. Yeah, and, and try and bring some of that back rather than than um layering it with with your own opinions and right. I don't know. I, I think I, I I'm like no, I don't feel clear about this at all. I don't really know where it's gonna go next. But right. um it's the feature of our times, I suppose, that we're in a time of great uncertainty. And all of a lot of foundations that we we thought were solid um, are kind of you know literally melting away and collapsing. So, how travel writing as a you know as a genre responds to that, I'll be I'll be interested to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I, w- I was recently reading, um, well, always reading, but uh, I picked up a, a book uh, called The Art of the Publisher by um, Roberto Calasso, the um, publisher for Adelphi Editions uh, in Italy. There's a very short book where he talks about you know publishing and, and those types of issues. And he opens the book by talking about um, what is uh, a good book um, and why publishers should publish good books. And he, he talks about books... Um, he talks about the publisher should publish singular books, like unique books. And he defines that as uh, books in which it is clear that something has happened to the author and has been put into writing. So the the author is, what he's saying is an expert of his or her own experience. And I'm thinking about this now um, just because of what we're talking about, um, but also because of some of the criticism that travel writing and new nature writing has had lately. Um, and some say that, particularly to, to the nature writing side of things, that um, that nature writing is, is, is more about the ego than about the eco. Um, and that, that, that like the subjective eyes is too dominant and, you know, people claim of uh, bogus quest narratives in, in the writing. Hmm. Um, so I was wondering, like, your thoughts about, about this because I, I know you just said that you're not a nature, you don't consider yourself to be a, a nature writer, um, but it does kind of seep into the world of, of travel writing, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. And that the bogus quest is, is certainly something that I've noticed, I guess publishers kind of, they spot a, a successful pattern and they replicate it. And so there's, there's been some, there's been some wonderful books about, you know, that I kind of lazily cured the, the, the kind of the nature cure books from Richard Maybe um, writing about the nature cure. But the, you know, someone has a personal crisis, whether that's a depression or losing someone or uh, addiction problems or, you know, something, um, and then is saved by an encounter with a place or with. Um, an iconic creature that comes into their lives and teaches them X, Y, and Z. Um, and there have been some great books that have followed that that formula, but I've, I've definitely read books recently that you can really feel the hand of the editor kind of shoehorning in this mm. the book into this this format. And often it seems, you know, I, I've had moments of thinking, I'd. I don't want to know about your the birth of your first child. I'm sorry. I'm sure it's a magical moment, but I'm much more interested in the the, the topic the book's about. 
so I think people do are being kind of corralled into this quest narrative sometimes when actually I don't know if it, it feels a bit formulaic it feels yeah. like it's kind of one size fits all and often I wish they just strip away that whole kind of personal reflection unless it's something really pertinent to to the kind of yeah the form the book takes um and just focus on the you know the nature or the place they're going to which is what I'm really fascinated by and I, I suppose it can go the other way. You can have books about um, about place or about nature that have nothing of the the personality of the author in at all, and then suddenly you, you don't really have any kind of emotional connection. Um, but you're right; it's, it's swung very heavily towards this eco uh, ego. You were saying ego versus eco. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's not always the writer's fault. From books I've read recently, I think often it's it's the industry requiring a certain type of book because it sells well yeah or uh, like an, a, a trope that uh, they're expecting to see publishers and editors and and these narratives i wonder also you know you know to what extent that criticism really matters i mean i think part of the part of the beauty in in travel writing is that it confronts people who typically can't go to places with those places, right? And part of, uh, you know, the magic of nature writing is that it opens our eyes to, you know, the wonders and the beauties of, of nature. Part of me thinks, you know, so what if, uh, you know, there's a bogus quest here to make the narrative uh, better, right? So what if there's uh, someone here who is an expert of his or her own experience uh, talking about these these wonders of nature, I just I wonder, you know, where that criticism is coming from, and whether or not it's really really matters. I, su I, I suppose it's it's just if it's done well, yeah. you know, if it's if it's a good book, um, I think that's what it really hinges on. Mm -hmm. If it if it tra if it's transporting in that way, or if it does feel like something that that kind of is is a bit of an uncomfortable fit. Yeah. But you're, I mean, you're right, absolutely. If if it does open a reader's mind and imagination and eyes to something then that's that's so that's a that's got value in its own right and maybe maybe the vehicle by which it does that isn't so important ultimately right i agree and uh we're a bit close to to time here uh nick but i want to say uh, thank you so much for for coming on the podcast to talk about your new book outlandish and uh can you just let us know where we can track you down online? Sure. Yeah. My, um, my website is nickhuntscrutiny.com and it's, um, it's going to have a, a kind of update quite soon. Mm -hmm. And then I'm not really, I mean, the only social media thing I do is Twitter and my handle is at under scrutiny on Twitter, but I don't do Facebook or um, Instagram or anything like that. It's just those two, those two media. And I should maybe mention as well, I'm the currently the co-director of the Dark Mountain Project. So you can Google that um, and various bits of my work are on there as well. And I work as an editor for that um, journal and website. Tell us a little bit about that project, if you if you don't mind. So Dark, Dark Mountain has been around about 10 years and it is 
kind of notoriously hard to describe. Uh, at heart, it's a, <laughs> we publish two very beautiful hardback books a year of um, what I would loosely term ecological writing, but not really nature writing, not quite kind of climate writing. It's um, poetry and fiction and nonfiction and artwork that explores the, uh, being alive in a time of crisis, collapse, change, unravelings, endings. Uh, it's a project that is kind of much more about questions than answers. We're trying to work out how to be human in these times, how to be engaged with the world, how to, um, yeah, how, how to, what, what, how writers and artists kind of navigate times of uncertainty. So yeah, there's, there's lots in there. It's, uh, yeah, it's quite a, a rich, um, seam of, of, of ideas and writing. And I, I just must must say before you go, your, your uh, publicist, uh, Emmanuel has been very helpful um, and he sent out a, a copy of your book, uh, Outlandish, to me, but it didn't come in, on time and he looked into it. And so now I'm sitting on two copies of your book and I want to send one of the listeners a copy of, of your book. Um, so listeners, visit TravelWritingWorld.com and find the episode's post. Leave a comment and I will randomly pick one listener to send the book to free of charge. Thank you, Nick. Well, thank you. And I hope whoever receives that copy enjoys the journey he's inside. You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.